Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name's Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, as we were getting ready for this sermon series, uh, I was a little bit kind of, I'm obviously kicking around some ideas for a couple weeks, uh, but sometimes just a moment or an idea hits you uh, at just the right time. And as I was thinking about how am I going to kind of maybe make our way into this sermon, uh, it was during Pastor Chris's sermon last week, like literally one week ago exactly, um, I was getting updates. I had notifications turned off, don't worry. Uh, but I was getting updates about my brother who was running in the Columbus Marathon. Um, and we actually have a picture up here. Uh, I'm going to brag a little bit on him. Uh, here he is. Uh, he clocked in uh, with a time of three hours and 16 minutes, 57 seconds. Uh, averaging a pace of about seven and a half minutes a mile. Uh, so I was getting these updates, and my mom was up there with him, so I got to see uh, him finish up and hear a little bit from him after that, and just really proud of him and this hard work that he was doing. But then I started to think, you know, he's a great runner, fantastic runner, but I started to think, you know, what are some of the elite runners in the world? What, what kind of times are they looking like? And so, of course, I kind of went down the rabbit hole, and I found this gentleman right here, Eliud Kichogi, from Kenya, who has an official time of two hours, one minute, and nine seconds to run 26.2 miles. Unofficially, he ran another course. Now, this wasn't officially sanctioned, so you can't officially call it a time, but he broke the two-hour mark at 159.40, clocking in at four-and-a-half-minute miles. That's 13 miles per hour. Um, so I figured what we could do for an illustration is we'll just go down to the lakeside parking lot. Uh, somebody grab your keys, and we'll, just, we'll have you go 13 miles an hour, and we'll try to keep up. Um, but there's nothing like you know, talking about sustainability and talking about a marathon. Because sometimes maybe you can hit that top speed, you know, but it's that sustaining for the long haul that really makes a difference. And like us, us Americans, I guess you could say, we love a good challenge. And so a group put together what they called the Kip Kipchoge Challenge. You know, we've had the planking challenge where you planked on random items and the mannequin challenge where you just kind of stood still for as long as possible. Well, they put together the Kipchoge Challenge to see how long people could hold this pace that he held for two hours, which is about how long the sermon will take. So go ahead, we'll watch this video just to see what it was like to try to hold this pace. Trying to survive something like that for two hours would be, would be almost impossible. It's, it's unreal that somebody did that. It's right up there with 
with your big sprint, except towards the end, you're on that, that treadmill or that rolling belt. There's no stopping. So you have to keep going. There's no way you can just bail, give up on yourself. This wasn't at an arts and crafts expo. This was at a running expo. So these are runners who are doing this. And you could still see the difficulty that they were experiencing trying to hold this pace, try to sustain it. But like I mentioned, there's nothing like talking about sustaining grace and talking about marathons because so much of life can feel like a marathon, right? Not so much a sprint, but a marathon. And we're going to look at a story today in John 4 where Jesus has an interaction with a woman who I'm sure probably felt the same way. Moments where she wanted to just give up. She wanted to throw in the towel. She wanted to just quit. But this interaction where Jesus, she meets Jesus, or maybe rather Jesus meets her, where she gets inspiration to pick herself up and to keep going. And not only does that better herself, but the betters those around her as well. So we'll get started. We're going to look at John 4, and we're going to look at the woman at the well. It starts out saying this. This is verse 1. It says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did, which is interesting and great to note because here's Jesus, you know, calling others and he's uplifting others so that they can do his work. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sikar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. And just a couple things in this verse. Can we go back to six real quick? So this is Jacob from Jacob and Esau, uh, Jacob who wrestles with the angel at night. Uh, but also noticing here that it says Jesus was tired from the long walk. We talk about this, Jesus as fully God, but also fully human. Here he is experiencing the pains and the same kind of limitations that we experience as humans. He's tired from this long walk and needs something to drink. And then also notice the last word, noontime. We'll come back to that in a second. Continuing on verse 7, it says, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. This well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. So we have this interaction. Jesus meets this woman. He crosses over these boundaries, which we'll look at in a second, and he offers her this living water, 
that we will see not only sustains her, but sustains those around her. And one of the things I talked about as far as crossing those boundaries that we'll note is this sustaining grace that we see in this story is the sustaining grace that seeks us out. It it was seeking her out, and it does the same for us. So we have a picture here, real quick, of Judea, which is where Jesus was, and he was traveling up to Galilee. I know first glance kind of looks like it would say, okay, yeah, straight shot, you go through Samaria. But when verse 4 says Jesus had to go through Samaria, no, he didn't. As a matter of fact, what was typically done is they would cross over the river, and then they would travel up, and then they would cross back over the river to get into Galilee because Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. This was going back all the way to 722 B.C. when the northern region was conquered by the Assyrians. Uh, There were many things that created animosity between these two groups of people. Uh, They had taken and really only used the first five books of the Old Testament, which we call the Pentateuch, first five books, and they kind of created a little bit of their own religion. So when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, he didn't have to, he wanted to. He wanted specifically to cross over those boundaries, not only, I think, to see and find this woman, but really for all the Samaritan people that she knew in this community. There's even a little bit of a Jewish proverb that talks about kind of the differences between the two. It said this, a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh. So you can imagine the shock that she was kind of experiencing when Jesus asked her for some water. It wasn't so much that the food that they produced was bad, but when it was touched by them, it was considered to be contaminated and, as you can see, unclean when it was handled by a Samaritan person. So you can see here, Jesus was seeking her out. He was looking for her. He had a mission. It was not that he had to go through here. We even know about the Good Samaritan, the story of how the travelers were attacked along the way by these robbers. So in that case, a lot of people just avoided the Samaria area and would often go around. But Jesus made it a point. He was seeking her out and does the same for us. So not only is that sustaining grace that seeks us out, but it's also the grace that stops the revisiting of our pain. Do you have a place, a physical place? Maybe it's a figurative place that you just don't like revisiting. Maybe it reminds you of some previous pain, some previous trauma. Maybe there's some broken relationships. Maybe there's just a lot of hurt that you experienced there. I can remember when I was nearing the end of my time at CPE when I was a pastoral intern um, and chaplain at UNC. I was visiting a patient. I had had a good relationship. I had visited this patient multiple times, but he made a couple comments uh, that were a little bit alarming to me and myself being a mandatory reporter. I had to report them. And so I did to the proper authorities and myself along with these authorities. We had to go into the patient and question this man Well, needless to say, he wasn't very thrilled about this. And he let me know just what he thought, not only of this visit, but also what he thought of me. And he laid into me, saying some pretty harsh things. He didn't, you know, he didn't say any, you know, bad words or anything like that. He didn't call me any names, but he, he said some pretty hurtful stuff. And so the rest of my time at CPE, I remember every time I had to get in the car 
and I had to drive over to the hospital, and I saw that hospital. I could feel myself just getting tense. And I remember that very last day when I turned in my badge and I walked out of there thinking, I no longer have to revisit this pain. I've since figured it out, I've worked through it, but I can remember that last moment where I did not have to go back. Well, this woman, every time she went to the well, was a revisiting of pain. A little bit later in the verse uh, 17 and 18, Jesus says, go and get your husband, to which she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, I know this, but you have had five husbands. Now, this woman, as is noted in previous verses, is at the well at noontime. Everybody else comes in the morning. Only those who come at noontime are coming to avoid the crowds because at the noontime, it's hot, it's sticky, everybody else gets their water in the morning and goes their separate ways. But this past that this woman holds, having five husbands, probably being used, women can initiate divorce in this time, so she's probably been on the receiving end of this horrible treatment. She hates going to the well. Every single day, that's a reminder of the pain she has experienced. But Jesus offers her this living water, and she says, please give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back here. This is the grace that is offered to us so that we don't have to continually feel that hurt over and over and over, but allows us to look forward and keep going. But I think the most interesting part about this story, about the grace, when we talk about this sustaining grace, is what happens when she hears this, when she receives this living water for herself. Because it's the sustaining grace that ultimately builds community around her. Not only is she the one who receives this, but she shares this with other people and builds a community that ends up I think, supporting her. An interesting point about this woman is that she is actually the longest conversation that is noted in the Gospel of John. She has the longest dialogue with Jesus out of any other person in the whole Gospel. And she is also, technically, the very first evangelist. Here's this woman with a tattered past who Jesus has a conversation with, is the very first person to go and tell others about Jesus Christ. Skipping down John 4, verse 28, it says this, The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Skipping down to verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. This tells us a few things. First, it tells us not only can women share the gospel, but it also tells us that women should share the gospel. Women can be preachers and women should be preachers, especially seeing here that one of the very first evangelists was a woman. But also, it just shows the power of the grace that she received. We talked about how she was an outcast, how she had gone through all of this, and here she is going to the community that knows her well, that knows her past, and goes into this group and says, come, here's a man who has offered me living water. Come drink so that you may experience it as well. What do you think they're thinking at this point? Wait, 
we know who she is, and this man has offered her living water. Imagine what he could do for me. Imagine the pain that he could cover up in my life. So I think the way that this sustaining grace not only carries her along, that picks her up, that lifts her up, it also does so in the form of those around her. Who is it that lifts you up? Who are the people that have carried you when you can't carry yourself? Are they in this room? If you talked to them recently? We talk so much about how we need community. Community is so important. We're not meant to go at this life alone. And by her going and telling others, she built that community that eventually ended up sustaining her. Because as we're promised, this, this life is not going to be easy, but we're told to take heart. There's a poem I recently read that says this, that talks about this sustaining grace. It says, not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Then in the darkness is there to sustain. I read a story recently about a young lady named Hannah Peterson. Um, she was getting ready, as I'm sure most young people are, for their wedding and excited, looking forward to everything. You know, everything's in line. Uh, you got the dress, you got the flowers, you got the venue. Hopefully they have a good pastor to officiate the ceremony. But as they're getting ready, about a month before the wedding, she ended up getting into a car accident damaging her legs so bad that she was unable to walk and carry herself. And I imagine she's got deposits down, she would lose places, so she avoids that, not wanting to push anything back. She presses ahead and ends up going forward with the wedding. So what she does is halfway down the aisle, her father carries her down and then stops. And then her husband, who is at the altar waiting for her, goes down, picks her up, and carries her the rest of the way. Now, for the whole ceremony, she wasn't able to stand. She sat for part of it, but she stood for the I wills, the I do's, and the kisses. Isn't that a testimony? Surrounded by friends and family making a covenant with God to be carried by one another. I saw that in action just before the 930 service. I see my wife walking with my son Liam, and he trips Sure enough, skins his knees, starts bleeding, screaming his head off. Alicia picks him up, dusts him off, kisses his knees, says, you're all better, and keeps going. Because this life is not promised to be easy for us. But this grace is in the darkness with us to sustain us. Because like we talked about, we have the grace that erases failure, the grace that sustains us, and the grace that liberates us. And we, as we run this race, this life that is a marathon, not a sprint, we look forward to when God will be waiting for us at the finish line to say, well done, good and faithful servant. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this grace that picks us up that dusts us off and sets us on this way. And we give you thanks for the grace in the form of community around us, the Holy Spirit at work moving through one another 
to carry us when we cannot carry ourselves. We give you thanks. May we be that grace for others. May we live into that grace that is offered to us, the grace that is so freely given. We give you thanks. Amen.